All right. Well, if you're looking for a verse to turn to, the first verse we're going to look at is Romans, but we're going to spend very little time there in Romans 3, but I, I am going to go there. We spent a lot of time looking at the one another passages that tell us and instruct us that how we are to live with one another, why we are to live with one another, and we, we looked at those quite a bit. <clears throat> but we're going to be looking at, for the next several months, uh, the church, the doctrine of the church. And I think it was over a year ago where we went through a series on the church and went through... Um, some things on the church, the marks of the church, and how we are to uh, operate as a church. We're going to go through that again, and it's really a timely for us as we're beginning to rewrite our constitution and bylaws. It's important to think through some of these things as a church together and in community. So, as we go tonight, I know that oftentimes on Wednesday nights, and it's sometimes by design, to be honest, I don't really leave a lot of room for questions, uh, but I want you to feel free to ask any questions you have. Um, so, if you have a question, please just let me know. So, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the church, and specifically, I'm going to ask this question, is how do we determine a church is a true church? How do we determine whether a church is a false church? This has been a, an issue in the church from the beginning of the church. And you'll see that throughout church history, uh, people would argue and debate over what was to be the essential doctrines that the church must have that define what the church is. And you see things like the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed that outline these are the basics, non-negotiables that you must agree to in order for you to be able to be called a Christian. You see at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther uh, calls the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, it, it is in exile, or it's in Babylon, in exile, and he sees that it, the church had been kept in exile because of the denial of justification by faith alone. You see later on in England, the nonconformists that said, we're not part of the Church of England. We don't believe that you're believing, you hold to the right doctrines. And so you see these separations that take place and we see continually from really the time of the Reformation until now distinctions that set boundaries on what a true church is and what a false church is. And within this idea of true churches, there's a lot of different ideas. We could say the true church, in terms of what it needs to believe in to be a true church, is a big umbrella. It contains a lot of people with whom we would disagree on things. So what is a church? Let's start there. The Greek world used that word ekklesia. We have the Greek, that's the Greek word ekklesia. We have the study of ecclesiology, which is studying the doctrine of the church. It comes from that word ecclesiology, uh, ecclesia. Uh, so what does that mean? It meant an assembly of people. And in the scriptures... Specifically, the word church means this, an assembly of saints that are in Christ. It's a group of people that have professed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that assemble together. That's the church. 
So, you know, oftentimes we, we say, you know, here, here's the church, here's the steeple, and then inside is the people, and we say that, that the people inside it is the church, right? And that's absolutely true. It's the assembly of saints, those that have professed the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does beg this question for us, are there external things that are observable and can be tested by which we could say, that's a true church. Well, the church has answered this with three things. The marks of a true church is the pure preaching of the gospel. So you can tell a church by that outward sign or outward mark is the pure preaching of the gospel or, as some said, pure doctrine. There's also the pure administration of the ordinances. What are the ordinances? Lord's Supper and, and baptism. And then the third thing is church discipline. Now, if one of these is missing, then it is no longer identifiable as a true church. If they are distorted in some way, then we would want to be careful and not quick to label a church a false church, but maybe irregular in their practice of one of those marks. For instance, if let's say there's a debate on baptism, and in that baptism debate of how, what is the proper mode of baptism, uh, we get to heaven and we find out this side was wrong. They were still practicing this ordinance irregularly, but they were still doing it according to their scriptural convictions. We would not say because someone has a different view on that, that that's a false church. Not at all. Uh, so there's a presence of things. There could be someone that preaches, they're, they're doing their best in preaching the gospel, but maybe they have a few doctrinal things not quite yet figured out. By the way, who has all of their doctrinal T's and I's crossed and dotted? I don't. I don't at all. So can we say with, with certainty that the preaching is pure in the sense that there's no defilement that takes place? 100% of the time, no, we wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that about myself. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the pure preaching of the gospel. It just means that there might be irregularities in it. So doctrine is a mark of the church, and we subscribe to a common profession. We believe the right things and hold them as essential. And the ordinances, Christ instructs us to do two things as a church. He instructs us to do baptism, and He instructs us to uh, do communion and discipline. Why is that a mark of the church? Christ calls us to keep His bride clear or uh, pure. Which, by the way, if Christ says, keep the, my bride pure, that means that there's an identifiable group that are formally assembled together by covenant that have submitted themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the structure that the Lord Jesus Christ has put in place. So our lives externally match what has taken place internally. And this evening, what we're going to look at specifically in, in those three marks is that of pure doctrine. And should this, should this be a mark of the church? Because uh, I readily admit to you 
there, there are errors in, in my theology. I've interpreted passages probably not perfect. And why? Because I'm fallible. God's word is infallible, but I'm fallible. So is it really fair to say that pure doctrine should be a mark of the church? Well, I'm going to make the argument that Scripture says yes. So is theology, is doctrine in Scripture? You don't find the word theology, by the way, in Scripture. You don't at all. But is it there in its sense? Absolutely. Even though we don't see the word. You don't see the word Trinity in the Scripture. But we affirm the Trinity, our triune God. In fact, that is essential in order to be a church. Here's the reality is we don't take we, we, we don't we just we don't just take the Bible and let me how do I phrase this as sometimes we think that we just take the Bible and we we say, well this is what we believe and we just we just follow Jesus and we would say yes that's that's true. But in that belief, we have identified, the church has identified, these are the essential things that we believe the Bible says that would separate a church from a non-church. And we have identified, the church has throughout history, theology that can be called pure. Now, God has revealed His will. God has revealed doctrine. And we are given the task of doing what? Studying it. When you hear difficult theological discussions, sometimes you go, boy, I don't even understand that. It doesn't even seem to be like in Scripture. Actually, theologians are just responding to what we see in Scripture with questions. But is this a scriptural thing? In Romans chapter 3, verse 2, we see this. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is the doctrines of God. God. Scripture itself tells us there are doctrines that were entrusted to man as God reveals himself to man. So, does God reveal to us doctrine? Well, God tells us he does. And this is what we have to understand, is there's a right understanding that's implied with this. So, God has revealed himself to us. God, we would all agree, says he, that he makes himself known to man by relationship. His very name, Yahweh, is the revelation of himself that we may know God. So, God doesn't just give us this code book and say, good luck, you can't figure it out unless you have the magic glasses to, that decodes it for you. No, God gives us his word. He has revealed himself to us that we may understand him. And he has given us some things that are very, very basic that we have to have a right understanding of. If you look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the author of Hebrews, and I know I keep saying the author of Hebrews, it's probably Paul. So probably Paul pinned this, but it's the Holy Spirit who pinned this. It says this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now this implies right off the bat that there is a right understanding of some essential things that identify the church as the church. What are principles? Principles. 
They're really, it's the elementary stages of a subject. You might say it's the, it's the simple truths that we, we profess. It's the basics of the faith. It's those, those things that you learn right away when you become a Christian and you don't ever depart from them. You don't ever depart from those basic essential things you learn. You just continue to mature in those very things that we learn right off the bat. But these are the basics. This is why he says milk versus solid food. Milk is easy to take down. Solid food is not. It's a process. And what we learn here in this passage is very crucial. We learn that they were an assembled group according to what someone had originally taught them. So what you see is a picture of a local church or maybe a group of churches that were taught some basic, simple truths that identified them as being a church, that identified them as a mark. You'll notice the you there. You need someone to teach you. You is plural. It's a group of people that are being addressed. Now, if Hebrews is a sermon, which it seems like Hebrews is a recorded sermon, you can almost imagine the preacher is preaching to a group of people and says, you all, y'all, y'all need to go back to these basics that you first were taught. The word again means this, is that they had already been taught basic truths that set them aside. They continued to meet under that idea that we hold these basic truths. But at some point, because he says you need to do this, hear this again, it means at some point, what did they do? They set aside the basic principles, the first principles. So perhaps over time, these congregations had stopped working through the basics of the faith. And what happens when you stop working through the basics of the faith? You start to kind of move away from it until you're eventually slipped away from what you hold, you originally held dear as being the thing that defined who you are. And that seems to be the issue here. And this seems to be a common theme of church life in general, where in time, congregations move away from their first principles that identified them. And when they do this, they're, they're a step away from no longer having that mark of pure doctrine. You can see that it's an issue. You look at Colossians in chapter 2. Paul, writing to them, is dealing with all of these issues, issues of food, drink, festivals, the Sabbath days. Uh, They're looking at asceticism, which is a false humility. They've got worship of angels. They're talking about visions. Uh, They're becoming uh, contentious and... They're beginning to depart from what was originally given to them. 
So Paul corrects this. It's the same way that takes place in Hebrews. We're looking in Hebrews in chapter 1. What is Paul correcting in, in Hebrews chapter 1? Jesus, Jesus is greater than, than the angels. He's doing the same thing in Colossae. There, there must have been this infatuation. Almost angelic worship was taking place. That's why he says in chapter 1, verse 15, he gives a statement about Christ about who Christ is and the work of Christ. And then he says, don't depart from these things. You're moving away from them. Look at Galatians. It's so clear what happens in Galatia. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So this church that, that Paul is crucial in its growth and its planting, uh, and he gives them the gospel, a group of false teachers come in and teach an impure doctrine. They teach something that's not pure doctrine of the gospel of Christ. They're preaching a different message. And Paul's saying, how could you guys desert that basic thing that I taught you that we're justified by faith alone? How could you desert that? Who has bewitched you? And so this is a common theme in church life. Look at the letters to the Corinthian church. In in all of Paul's letters, there's always some sort of corrective. Do you think that Paul's writing these letters and goes, you know what, I think I forgot to let them know about the deity and humanity of Christ, and that Christ is going to return one day, and that... Or, or did, do you think Paul like, says, you know what, I must have missed that whole justification by faith alone thing. No. He's already taught them these things, but somewhere along the line they've departed from it. And so he's saying, look, you departed from those basic elements, that pure doctrine that identified you as a church. You need to go back to those things. And so what happened were these churches that were established, they were taught the basic truths of the gospel. What are those basic truths of the gospel? We're saved by grace through faith, alone, in Christ alone. And why is it that we can be saved by Christ? Because Christ is truly God. Christ is truly man. As truly man, he stands in our place as, our, as the head and representative of mankind. As God, he can, he can actually uh, uh, propitiate appease God upon the cross and that He rose in vindication over death, over sin. He conquered these things. He now rules as our high priest. He now rules as king. These are the essential things of the, doct- of, of, of the gospel. And then the, you follow that up with this idea that Okay, now we follow that with baptism. And we're baptized in the name of the triune God. Okay, so then, even in the very basic elements of the preaching of the gospel, not only do you see that we're saved by justification, by grace, or by faith, by grace, in Christ alone, we have to know who Christ is. Our baptismal formula is in the triune God, so we have to know something about our triune God we have to know something about the nature of these things. 
And so, in time, it seems like churches would depart from these basic truths. And so Paul, or another apostle, grieved over this, would write to them explaining the basic truths of the gospel and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then often these explanations that Paul gives, what were they rooted in in Paul's letters? What did Paul oftentimes root his arguments in? Creation, okay. But where do we learn about creation? The Old Testament. His his writings are littered with the Old Testament Scripture showing this is authoritative for your life. And then he would apply it. This is how you... How you live. Here's what Christ has done, so respond to his mercy by obedience. You think about these basic elements. I'm not asking you to answer these, but just for you to think through. Who who is God? How would you explain in in 30 seconds the, the Trinity? We can't explain. I mean, we, can't, we can't fully comprehend God in His nature. But how would you explain that essential thing that we say the Trinity is so important that if you actually don't believe in the triune God, you've departed from Christianity? That's, pretty, that's a pretty bold statement, wouldn't you agree? So when we make a bold statement like that, then can we ourselves say... Yes, I hold this truth as being essential. And I'll tell you why. Because of what the Scripture reveals about God. Who is Christ? How would you, you're in an elevator and someone says, I need you to tell me who Jesus of Nazareth was. How would you, how would you define that? How would you explain his perfect life lived? His death, burial, and resurrection. How would you articulate how salvation works? That it's by grace and by no merit of our own. These are the truths that we hold dear as the essential principles, the non-negotiables that Christians have confessed for 2,000 years. But what have we already seen in the text of Scripture by implication already? What is our tendency? What's our tendency? To depart from those. It seems like this. I, I, I'm going to give you a, a question you can please answer if you have an answer. Churches seem, this is what I I wrote down, churches seem to go awry by fascination with things that are not elementary, which then eventually defines the group, the assembly. They become fascinated with things that are, say, debatable. And that becomes what identifies them. That becomes the thing that is the essential doctrine of that assembly of people, not the essentials of the faith, but something else where there's a lot of disagreement. Have you ever seen that in a church? Anyone seen that? Yeah? What's an example of that? 
in times? Any others? Worship service. Okay. Yeah, those are things. Any other ideas? Sabbath. How you conduct the Sabbath. Very good. Yeah. Sabbath. Whether you're Sabbatarian, and whether you're Sabbatarian or not Sabbatarian, there's all sorts of views within in between those. Yeah. And churches become known for those things rather than. The gospel of Christ. Now, are those things important? Absolutely. Yeah, we should discuss those things. If Scripture has revealed something to us, that means God has revealed it to us for our benefit and for our good, and so we should explore those things. Churches also seem to go awry by losing sight of the basic elementary principles, by embracing things like social justice. And by the way, I don't even just mean the social justice movement that's going on now. That was going on in the early 1900s, there was a guy named Walter Rosenbusch that started the, the social gospel that influenced churches horribly here in the United States. There's politics that a church becomes known for their politics. Uh, Robert Jeffries had Sean Hannity, who is a confessed Roman Catholic, come in and be part of his worship service. He has no business doing that. But that church has become identified by that. Or maybe they become, uh, we're we're part of this this growth movement. Have you seen any of those examples? What are some of those, what are some others? Have I missed anything? What is it? Westboro. Fred, 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 Fred Phelps. Yeah, Westboro Baptist Church. They became about hate, what God hates. Yeah, that's what identified them, right? That's a contemporary one, right? Yeah, yeah. Fred's Fred Fred's dead, but uh, um, the church is still there, as far as I know. Yeah, and so they became they they've gotten off focus, and something that was not articulated very well at all uh, that that has become what identifies them. They they have left the pure doctrine of the church. What is a pastor? Yeah. Yeah, so being influenced by society and shifting with the trends of the day. So churches go awry by leaving the elementary principles of this is who we are, this is what identifies us, this is the pure doctrine of the church. And I think Hebrews makes it clear that there are, but so does Jesus. If you'll look over at John chapter 10. And I want to just think through this passage. In verse 16, John 10, 16, Jesus says this. He says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What does a flock indicate? People, a group that is identified, people that are identifiable, and how are they identified here, according to Jesus? What identifies this group, according to the text? 
they will what? They will listen to my voice. They are his. So it's a group of people that are responding to Jesus' voice. An identifiable group. Jesus speaks. They will listen. He says they will listen. The flock then is identified by the voice of Christ. Now, how do we hear Jesus' voice today? Well, Jesus designed it in this way, that these 11 men, because Judas isn't going to do well, they're going to write things down. And he's got another apostle that he's going to call. And who's the other apostle he's going to call? He's going to call Paul. We don't have anything written by Matthias, who was the other that filled Judas' spot. But look what he says in chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus says, I'm going to teach you the things that you need that are the essential things. Jesus himself says, I'm going to teach you these things, and he designs it in a way that he sends his Spirit, and what does the Spirit do? No prophecy has come by the will of man, but by the Spirit of God. In other words, Jesus ensures that we today would be able to hear his voice. And how is it that we hear his voice? It is because the apostles wrote down his words, and we hear his words when we hear the scriptures. In John chapter 10, again, sticking on this same theme, in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you, not, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. Now, why are they not among his sheep? He says, he already said, my sheep hear my voice. So that's an identifiable group. They're identified by the voice of Christ. So Jesus says the flock, the church, is identified by his voice. And he says this, you don't believe me because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. So the church is identified by hearing the voice of Christ. The, those that are not in the church, not in the true church, not in that true flock that Christ has called out, they're not identified by the voice of Christ. Christ is not their shepherd. They don't listen to his voice. The theologian Francis Turretin says this, For if the church is a flock of sheep, and the sheep are no other than they who hear the voice of Christ, wherever the voice of Christ is heard, there the sheep of Christ must necessarily be. So we're identified by that voice of Christ, that we listen to his voice. And if you go over backwards to John 8, Verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
This gives us a better idea of what it means to listen to his voice. It's not just a merely we heard his voice and we listened to it one time, but what does Jesus indicate here to it's the ongoing nature of hearing his voice. It's the emphasis on hearing the words of Jesus. And so the church is not identified by initial hearing and acceptance, but rather ongoing adherence and listening to the voice of the shepherd. That's the ongoing reality of the church. And what is he, when he says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. How could we today have that unless Christ had said and promised his disciples, I'm going to give you a word to write down and put it in a book? How would we be able to have that unless Christ had planned it for us? So I want to think about a few things. There are basic elementary principles or doctrines that identify the church. Would you agree? You think we've seen that? But we saw a tendency, and that tendency is the church. What's the tendency of the church? Yeah, to walk away from those things for some reason. Teacher, Jesus teaches that the church is identified by listening to his voice in perpetuity, that is, ongoing listening to his voice, or to abide in his word. Those that do not abide in it are not his true disciples. So can we make the case that it's correct to say that a mark of a true church is pure doctrine then? Can we say, yes, that is a, that is a mark of the church is pure doctrine? How do I find a good church, or how do I find a true church? Well, what is their doctrine like? Here's our problem. This is what we've run into. God's word is pure. God's word is infallible. God's word is inerrant. We are not. We're not. We make errors. We forget. Again, quoting Turretin, he says this. Doctrines have an absolute infallibility. But the human intellect has properly no infallibility. (laughs) So we have this wonderful Bible that is pure and is without error, but our problem is that we have error. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Fundamentalism in the Word of God, and he was dealing with sometimes that we come across passages that seem to be contradictory, and he, he handles it so well by saying, the problem isn't the Word of God, the problem is us. And I'm paraphrasing what Packer said. Now, as we see this reality that we are fallible, we get things wrong, would we say that there are words or there are groups that would identify themselves with the words of Christ, that would say they believe the Bible is true, yet we would say, that's not a true church. Would we say that that's actually possible, to say that there's a group that says, we, we believe Jesus, we believe the Bible, but we would actually look at them and say, yeah, but that's not a true church. Yeah, an example. Okay. Okay, okay. Go, go, go more. Uh, give me another example. Mormon? Yeah, more, okay, Mormon. Why? Because they would say they believe the Bible. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they believe there's this new revelation that, that contradicts Jehovah's Witnesses. And why? They say they, they say they believe in the Bible, the new light translation, or the new world translation. They say they believe in Jesus, so why? It's a different Jesus. Absolutely. So just because someone says, I believe in Jesus, and I believe the Bible is true, doesn't actually mean that they are identified as a Christian. Michael and I were joking earlier. That means you've just reached what? You've just reached demon level. So this brings up this question. Does this mean that the teaching pure doctrine is then subjective? Yeah, I would deny and say that there is truth that can be known. I would deny those that say that truth cannot be known. I would say truth can be known. We have an objective word. We have been given an objective word of God. And what we need to know as essential, God has made clear. And there is unanimity on that. In fact, that's why Paul says that the church itself is a pillar and buttress of what? Of truth. He states this in the addictive, indicative. This is what the church is. So this is true insofar as the church is being faithful to the doctrines of the church. So how, how do you know? How do you know? First thing is, is let's admit this. Is there any church that is perfect? No. The Baptist, London Baptist Confession of Faith says this, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. The purest, it says, are subject to it. Some have so, he goes on in the confession to say, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ has always had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world to the end thereof of such as believe in him and make profession in his name. So there is no, there is no perfect church, but there is a church that can leave the elementary teachings of the gospel, the nature of God, who Christ is, and what Christ's work is, that as the confession says that they could become a synagogue of Satan. I think that if you read the book of Revelation to the seven uh, churches, that's absolutely confirmed there. Christ says, I will remove my lampstand from you, which means they would no longer be identified as a church. And if those seven churches are representative of all types of churches that you could have throughout the whole entire church age, which I think it is, that, that means that a church could start off a certain way, but then at some point Christ removes his lampstand from it. Now, when you think about this in pure doctrine, what are reasons why people come into the church in the first place? Researching. Searching. Oh, searching. Okay. Terminal in their life. Yeah. No, that's good. Thank you. Um, when, and we, 
they join oftentimes today, do you think it's because of the pure doctrine of the church? No. It's usually because of other things like fellowship or something like that. Or something more superficial. Social, yeah. There are those that join based on a doctrinal conviction. If I had to move away and find a new church, I would be doing a lot of research on what the church has believed in that area. I would be looking at doctrinal things. So there are those that that are out there, and I'm, I'm sure many of you would do the same thing. But even when you look at a church that maybe has a certain denomination that you would affiliate with, we understand that even within a denomination, there's various understandings of how people understand things, right? So where do we go to determine this? First thing that I do is I look at a statement of faith. And I ask this question, is their statement of faith in line with historic Christianity? The next thing is I do is, because a church can say, we hold these doctrines... And they can post that on their website, but then when you go and hear them preach, you go, they don't actually believe what they say they believe. That happens, right? So the next thing you should be looking at what? Preaching of the Word. What's the preaching and teaching? I, I hear oftentimes, uh, I was talking to someone say, well, you know, it's, it's biblical, and uh, this, this preaching is biblical. I go, well, you know, they're telling me about this person they were, they were watching on TV, which, red flag one. It was biblical teaching. And I asked him, and I'm not joking, I said, who, who are you listening to? Who are you watching? They said, Joel Osteen. I said, that's not biblical preaching. But his conception was because he quoted the Bible every now and then that it was, but it, it's not. So you want to look at the preaching. Is it expositional? Now, given the tendency of churches to move away from the elementary principles of the faith and then lose sight of the gospel and the person and the work of Christ, what are the ways that we we as a church make sure we bear the mark of a true church. What are those ways? Here's where we're going to go in the coming months or weeks. We have other marks to get to. Expository preaching and teaching. Tonight I took a topic Topical preaching is sometimes denigrated, and I don't think rightfully so, or always for the right reasons. Because what did we do as we were taking this topic? We are expositing what the Scripture says about it. It's like systematic theology. Systematic theology takes a collection of verses and says, this is a truth according to these verses. We look at the context. But it's still expository even when it's topical. Second thing is this, is familiarity with the confession and showing, listen, this is crucial, is showing that those propositional truths from Scripture. So, for instance, I quoted the London Confession of Faith. I said, this is what the London Confession of Faith is, but how do I know that that's what the Bible says? So it's one thing to say and be familiar with the Confession of Faith It's another thing to say, okay, this summarizes what we believe the Scripture says. So here's here's the summary of what we believe Scripture says, but then now here's where I see it in Scripture as well. Those are are two, two different things. So it's understanding why we 
we say this is what we believe about whatever it is, fill in the blank. So you all hold propositional truths that you say, this is what I believe. So you have your own confession, your own creed in which you would describe your faith. That's great. You should. The next thing is this is, can I then show it from Scripture? Does it come from Scripture? And be able to show those two things. And then third, community learning and accountability. This is so crucial to have community learning and accountability where we come together and we discuss these things in a community. The Bereans were noble Bereans because they did it together. They didn't go home as individuals, but they as Bereans in their total studied what the things Paul said and whether they were being true or not. Let me tell you, this is so helpful. Just this last Sunday, someone came to me with a passage of Scripture and says, I think this verse means this. And I looked at it and I said, it doesn't mean that. And then Monday I saw this person again and they said, I'm more convinced that this verse means this. And I looked at it and I go, I don't think it means that. Well, it started bothering me. So Tuesday, I, I went into my office and I pulled some commentaries and I started doing some reading on it. I go, oh, you know what? He was right. I was wrong. I think he's right. That verse does mean that. Thank God that he pressed me on it. Because if he had just said, oh, well, you're, you're just the pastor, you know, you, or you're the pastor, so you must know. No, he was convinced that that's what the Word of God was saying. And I was convinced, well... I don't think that that's what it's saying, but now I think he was right. That's how we learn together, and no one is above that. Not me, and not anyone else. We, we do this learning together, and it's necessary in order that we bear that mark of pure doctrine and pure gospel preaching in the church. Without any questions. Yeah. 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 That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. How do we know whether someone's right or not? A couple of things is this. Yeah, that's that's a good question. How do we do that? Well, one is that you have to look and say, is what he's saying, is that new and is that different from what other Christians have said? In other words, you've got to do homework. And so, you're right. It's, it's kind of like this, as if I came in and I tried to teach you trigonometry, you're going to take my word for it, right? But it's going to, but my point is this, is it's complex. And if you wanted to learn trigonometry, you would put the effort into it. This is eternal life. This is your soul. How much more effort should we put into it? Than... 100%. Exactly. So it is confusing. It takes work. It's community. We look at what has the church always said about these things? And uh, time. It just takes time.
Yeah, so you, you're responsible for what you believe. And so you have to go and test those things according to God's word. And then I would say testing it against, is this new teaching? Is this something that's new to the church in its history, which takes work? And at some point, honest truth is, you're going to have to just trust some people. The more we study, the more we'll understand. The more you study, the more you understand. Yeah, and I, I, I do think that, like, you know, there is an element of trust. You come into this church... Well, this, this church has said, we want this person to be our pastor and to teach us. So there's an element of trust that's happened. And if at some point this church says, well, we don't want him to be, our, that's their choice to do that. And so there's an element of trust that we, we kind of assume. But part of that is what you covered before is looking at their doctrines of faith, whereas us being a congregation, are, the church has decided you as the pastor. Yeah. And it's not you as the pastor decided this is my thought. Right, and that's a great point. You know, and like with our with the confession of faith, if I'm outside of our confession of faith, someone needs to call me on that. But we have to know it. You gotta know it. That's why when you join the church, you go through a new members class that covers it. Yeah, thanks. That's a great point. Um, because if you're not here, you're going to miss things. And, and, and after, after a while, if that becomes like the habit, you're left behind in many ways. That's a great point. Yeah. Any other questions? I had a quick one, but it's halfway off topic, but it's not. I can always count on you for that, Dwayne. <laughs> Yeah. Um, how do the dispensationalists deal with that verse? Uh, you know, when they get into uh, Israel and John, Mac- John, John MacArthur sees that as the tearing down of the wall of, 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 of hospitali- uh, hospi- uh, hostility. He would interpret that, I think, the same way that I would. Yeah. I think. If I remember correctly, that's how he saw it, is that that is the inclusion of Jew and Gentile of the church in this age. They, I think that would be what they would say is in this age. Not, he would, I think he would see it differently in the age to come, maybe. But as far as this age, yeah. Any other questions? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly 